This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their favourite things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain a genuine insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Osher Gunsberg is, amongst other things, one of Australia's most recognisable and loved media personalities. Most recently on our screens is the host of The Bachelor and Bachelor in Paradise. Osher is soon to publish his memoir, Back After the Break. I first came across Osher as Andrew G when I used to watch Australian Idol with my young kids back in 2003. Then 15 years later, I met him in person when he invited me onto his podcast. Not only did he have a different name, he was also completely different to how I imagined him to be from the TV, which made me all the more keen to find out what the five of his life were. So, Osha, without telling us what it is yet, which of the five items did you find the most difficult to choose? Ah, oh, probably the favourite song, Nige. Ah, brilliant. I, I love that song. We're not going to say what it is yet. I love that song. And why did you find that difficult? Because as someone who's had an entire career... Uh, based in music and like anyone music forms and you know we'll get to this unless we want to talk about it now no i don't know like anyone music forms these extraordinary snapshots that pull us instantly back um there's a lot of songs man that mark really important times in my life and so that was a toughie so, and, and the, how did you find the whole, I mean, did the whole process make you feel sad, nostalgic, excited? Going through your questions? That's right, the five I choices. I very confusing because I'm in the middle of trying to fit, like, I'm, just so you listeners know, they're listening to this whenever they want. Time is not, you know, a, a linear situation when you're listening to podcasts. You put them on when you're ready. Um, but this morning, I'm 25 minutes late for Nigel because it is the, this is the day I hand in my dead, my yeah. book. I have, in that backpack right there, I have 342 pages of work in the Uber on the, I was going to drive here, but I'm so late with my deadline in the Uber. I took an Uber and on the front seat, I'm like, sorry, buddy, I'm going to give you five stars. I promise you, but I just have to work. And I had the laptop open on my lap while we were hurtling through (laughs) the inner city of Sydney, trying to get to the studio here. And I'm frantically typing away because as soon as I finish here, I've got to race up to my publisher's office and put the thing on his desk before noon. Like, because we're, Printing presses are uh, unbooked and yeah. they're ready and they're waiting for this thing. Mate, we are honoured you've squeezed us in. And, and, and congratulations, by the way. It's a, it's a big deal, especially if it's a memoir. It is. It is a memoir and um, it is a big deal. But um, like many other things that I've found that were totally beyond my scope, like that, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. That's for people who know how to do those things. I, it is just one more thing in my life that is at first utterly insurmountable. And then go, hang on, if I just break this massive thing down into half and then break those two things down into half and break those four things down into half and keep halving it and halving it and halving it and halving it until I've probably got, I don't know, a couple of hundred steps. And then just take one at a time. And then before you know it... You're there. You're there. 
On which point I'm going to move on to your first choice. You, you've chosen The Matrix. We're going to start with your film. Ah, yeah. And, and, and I'm glad you've chosen The Matrix because, full confession, I've seen that film once, 19 years ago, totally pissed, didn't understand a minute. So could you explain what the hell was going on uh, before you tell us why you've chosen it? In the film? The film. I've got no idea what's going on. Um, the film is, like, I love it for so many reasons, Nige. I love it because of how it was made. It was made by a pair of brothers who are now a brother and sister. Get your head around that. Uh, one has transed. Or that's the, correct. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. correct. Um, uh, the brother who's now a sister, um, she has, I've seen her speak and she says, oh, I'm so happy for my time in Sydney. It was transformative and she brought the house down. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, and the way that that film came to be, that it was sold as a trilogy and no, no one had ever done that before and it was kind of this, you know, this movie that was brought down to Australia. It was one of the first big, big, massive, made hundreds of millions of dollars and it was made right here in Sydney. I think it was the second film they shot at Fox Studios after Dark. Okay. Dark, right. Dark City, I think, was the first one they shot there. So it was really full on, and, and I was here in Sydney when they were shooting it, and so Keanu was running around on motorcycles and helicopters, and it was all happening, and so it was a very exciting thing. And then when it came out, it was just so utterly mind-blowing as far as what they were doing with the filmmaking, with the, the, the process of the filmmaking, and not only the special effects, but the, well, yeah, the special effects, the concepts, you know, the bullet time, which as an advertising executive you would have seen in 70,000, pictures after the moment that film came out. So sure. while you may have only seen The Matrix once while drunk, you have seen rip-offs of footage of films, of moments of it. It's like if you've never seen a Hitchcock film ever, you will watch a Hitchcock film and go, oh, that's I recognise that. That's yeah. The Simpsons. Because The Simpsons constantly, constantly steal shots and moves from Hitchcock. Um, I'm pretty nerdy in case... Uh, well, look, because this is fascinating, because you, you are talking with, with passion, and I'm finding it interesting, but about the technique of making it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You still haven't told me what the fuck it's about. Ah, right. What happens in the bloody film? What happens in the film is that uh, a man who is confronted by the reality that he's in, finding it boring, finding it, there's got to be more to this, suddenly gets told there is more to this, Right. You have to choose to see. It's going to be very uncomfortable. Right. You have to choose. If you want to know how there's more of this, you're going to have to do the rigorous hard work to figure out how to live in this thing that you're existing in or or you can go the rest of your life not caring and just be a worker bee, be a drone and right. don't ever worry about it again. That's where you get. And you've heard this many times again. Red pill, blue pill. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You, Nigel Marsh, are a man that's taken the red pill. Right. You have taken, you have opened your eyes, you have broken free of the shackles of the things that were running your life, and you have, through rigorous introspection and through a great deal of, I'm going to be, you know, assumptive here, but a great amount of pain because you're like, what do you mean? I've got to let go of this thing that yeah. I, defined my life and drove me for so long. 
oh, okay, I'm going to have to figure out a new way of living. Oh, now I've figured out this new way of living. Oh, I can navigate through this world that used to run me. I can walk around it in a different way, seeing things I never used to see because I went through that painful process of figuring out how it all works. Wow. That's the matrix. So, so I, I've got a phrase that I love, which is decide, don't slide. Mm-hmm. Which is, I suppose, a, 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 a lamer version of red pill, blue pill. Is yeah. decide on your life. Yeah. Don't slide into it. It doesn't mean... You can, I mean, I want to look like Cary Grant. I'm never going to look like Cary Grant, so you've got to live with certain things you can't control. True. But but you can decide that I will try and live life, I hate the word, proactively. I'll, I'll, no. I'll, I'll be in charge of it. So I find this fascinating, mate. So your film yeah. is about a future fictional trap that humanity is in, but your book is about a real-world, present-day trap that lots of... Uh, humanity is in the uh, the, yeah. ha- the happiness trap. The book, the happiness trap. Yeah, well, so it links because yes, exactly. you got, you've got future future sci fi trap. Yes, and and then your your book. I don't know if that's why you chose it, but that's what when I was yeah. researching it. You go, holy holy moly! He's yeah. chosen this book that is in a way a real life version. Yeah. of of what he's probably going to talk about with the film. Yes. It, it's a tra- so so tell me about the happiness trap. But before you do, have I made this up? Is is Osher Hebrew for happiness or have I made that up? That's exactly true. That's exactly what it is. So, that, so it's doubly interesting, mate. Tell, yes. tell me about <laughs> Russ Harris's The Happiness Trap. Uh, so just for a start, though, The Matrix was set in present day. The Matrix, ah, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I thought it was... No, no, no. The Matrix I clearly was, didn't understand the film. The Matrix was set <laughs> in the present day as right. if like this world you live in right now is a simulation. Right. And you are just a line of code. And, and do you recommend that I now, after this, go off and watch it? Abso-fucking-lutely. Well, then I, I, I'm... Don't watch the second and third ones. No, okay, I won't go... Too much monologuing. <laughs> Too much monologuing. <laughs> a lot of monologuing. You're like, ah, oh, you just, just should have left it at one, guys. Should have left it at one. The first one is amazing, though. But, yes, there is definitely a, an, uh, a parallel between what the movie is about and yep. what the book is about because the book as well kind of then describes in like non kind of bullet time sci-fi, you know, um, uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne being your prophet um, ways. Yes, indeed. There's this thing that we've been told to expect out of life, uh, but you know what? It's, it, it's not actually how it works. And here's a way to understand a little more how this system of our life works. And part of that system is that just understanding that, uh, and Susan David talks about this in a book called Emotional Agility, just understanding that the price of having really wonderful, joyous emotions, the price of experiencing a really great day is experiencing painful and uncomfortable emotions and having a really bad day. Yeah. You cannot expect to have only one version of life. There is a positive and negative in every single thing in nature. It's the fundamental laws of the universe that there is balance either side of the zero line, all right? And this is the truth for our emotions as well, but it is in how we choose to see them. This is back to the red pill, blue pill. It is in how we choose to see them. And the happiness trap is it, it, it basically, it's a, it's a way of explaining in layman's terms something called acceptance and commitment therapy. Right? Act therapy, yeah. Yes, true. So... 
the 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 like in front of uh, Nigel, he has a beautiful moleskin uh, notebook. Which is, if you've never owned a, a moleskin, writing on a moleskin in a two B pencil is one of the most pleasurable sensations one can have. Absolutely, it truly is a glorious feeling, and it makes the words want to come out of your hand even better. Yeah, say for example, you wrote on this moleskin paper. Um, in you know, uh, in the in the world of what what you work in, certainly with the Sydney Skinny that people would know about, if you wrote on that piece of paper a story about your body, which a lot of people have, I'm a fat piece of shit. Yep. All right. And then you held that moleskin nine inches, ten, twenty centimeters from your face. Every moment that you spend in your life, you're walking around with this story right in front of your eyes, is clouded by this filter that you see. I'm a fat piece of shit. You go into the, the clothing store. Oh, all I can see is that I'm a fat piece of shit. You're trying to hang out with your family, enjoying a meal. All it says is I'm a fat yeah. piece of shit. So it just totally pollutes every single part of your day. So Matrix Style, what the book, The Happiness Trap is about, is just being with that and going through the pain of that and slowly, 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 if you imagine that moleskin is no longer in front of your face, it's now moving down to the left, down to the left, down to the left, and now it's just way down there on the edge of your vision. It's still there, but, you know, there's so many other things in your life that also exist. And you're like, you know what? Yes, that's just a thought. That's just a sensation. That's just a, an idea that I have, but it's not everything. It's not the totality of everything. I accept that this thing is here, but you know what? There's everything else here. There is my family. There is the fact that I earn enough money or I am able to buy this beautiful piece of clothing. There is this great meal that I'm able to share with these people that I love and who love me. Okay, that thought is trying to come back in front of my face. Okay, I appreciate it, but there's room for that and there's yeah. room for being with my family. I, I, I love the phrase, don't water the weeds. <laughs> where, <laughs> That's where, a goodie, yeah. Yeah, where, where you've got, you know, a whole bunch of, of whatever it is, 10,000 thoughts whizzing through your, your yeah. mind an, an hour and you go... Uh, the, do you know the writer Stephanie Darrick? Not yet. She, she said something very interesting to me where, where she chooses positive thinking just because it works better. <laughs> That's right. right so, so what outcome are you, Osher, after? So if you could say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a lovely bloke and uh, I, I, I'm worthy of love and belonging and all those wonderful things, uh, you could choose that na yeah. narrative for yourself if you want, whether it's true or not. You might, mm. you might be a horrible bloke and not worthy of that, but just pretend you choose that, right? Or you could choose, oh, I'm a worthless piece of shit, who da 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 You go, well, what's going to work better for you? <laughs> I mean, in your life, in terms of real yeah. life, you, you walk into a, in, into a party or a meal mm. and, and you, you uh, assume good intention of the people. You assume... Yeah. You, I, I'm terribly judgmental sometimes when, yeah. when I, I'll see someone and I'll, oh, it's awful, I'll write them off. And you go, well, how about don't do that? How about mm. give them the first, second and third chance to, yeah. to be a lovely human being? And then if they prove one, two, three, four times, well, then, then yeah. maybe they aren't. But the other thing on your book, which I wanted to chat to you about, because it's always annoyed and amused me that anyone would think that the point of life is to be happy or that we have the right to be happy. Yeah, you go. Who, wh wh you go. The point of life is to contribute. I mean, mm. it's, it's like a weird. So there's a generation of people running around going, "Why aren't I permanently orgasmically happy? Why mm. isn't the government organising the world so I'm constantly feeling great?" And you go, "Where did this? Where, well, this did, is, where did this come from?" Well, exactly. And this is the this is what the the book is 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 about is that there is that just to subvert that thought and go, look, crappy things are going to happen. Some days are going to be hard, but just remember that there is room for those uncomfortable emotions 
in the totality of everything. Those uncomfortable emotions aren't everything. They really, really aren't. Let's say, for example, um, I, I've, I'm married for the second time now, so I have been divorced, and many people who are listening will know what it's like at least to go through a breakup, all right? You may not want this thing. You may not want with all your heart for this thing to have happened. You may wish that it didn't happen, but the fact is that it did. Yeah. All right? Fighting that it did is an exercise in futility. Being an acceptance that it did is the path to freedom and moving forward. And what the book is about is about there is room for the fact that I'm now divorced in my life because if I look at everything else, the fact that I'm divorced, it's again holding the note paper in front of your face. If you start then counting everything else that's happening, yes, I'm divorced. I have two legs. I can walk around. I have clean water that comes out of a tap. I have food. I have refrigeration. I have the entire sum of human intelligence in my pocket that I can choose at any time to look at. I have friends that love me and care for me and have called me today to ask me if I'm okay because they know what's happened to me. I have a meal that I'm going to make for my lunch, which is going to nourish my body and going to help me be healthy and feel great. When you start listing all those other things, you're basically, you're filling your brain up with all these other stuff and you're like, and I happen to have just been divorced. So there's room do, do in you, my Do life. you draw? Are you, a, are you a painter or a drawer? I have been known to do such things. So, so I hate to give you yet another quote. I but, draw with words, man. <laughs> I, I, I try and, I'm in a constant press of trying to teach myself how to yeah. sketch. And there's a wonderful uh, phrase, which is life is like sketching without an eraser. Yeah, that's and you go wow. So, so, so if you, you know, if you're trying to do a drawing and impress somebody, you, 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 know, you rub the mistakes out. Yeah. But, but in in reality, the great drawings are where you make a mistake and then you adapt mm. and then you make it, and you and you go. It, it's you know, life is life. It's not all. It's not all going to be perfect. And so your your divorce is part of your backstory. And so to you know, t- to take what Morris Harris talks about in this book, the happiness trap, one step further with your you know sketching without an eraser. Russ teaches in the book to that. I've just got divorced, you know, everything is horrible. And rather than that just being on a, written on a notebook, so that's all that's on the page, a lot of the book is about how do you then expand? How do you then now put it on a piece of A4, put it on a piece of A3? In the end, you're putting this thing on a billboard. The font's the same size, Yeah. all right? But you're expanding. You're just being present to actually how big, big and how much is going on in your life and this is just a thing that is happening and you know what i may not like it i may not be happy that it's here but i have room for it and that is the the key message of that book that was really transformative for me i i, I knew that i was going to love chatting to you. <laughs> you, you, you 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 not only have you got a wholehearted sort of authenticity and integrity you're, you're, without, without risk of being a bromance you're, you're a very sort of appealing warm presence which is nice but you you think about shit quite deeply and your your third choice which is the song which mm. is the golden path yeah uh, now I, I need to i need to posit a theory to you so, so the golden path uh is a phrase that comes from frank herbert's sci-fi novels of the 70s and 80s and it describes the necessary strategy to uh, save humanity from ultimate destruction so I have to ask you, Usher Gunsberg, did you choose it because you're a deep thinker for that reason or because it's a bloody good song? I chose The Golden Path, and I do love Frank Herbert, by the way. Uh, you want to talk about a guy that 
it was dedicated to research and dedicated to like amazing, amazing work. Do you know he, he wrote Dune, right? Dune, yeah, yeah, all the Dune series. And, yep. Do you know where you know where that came from? He was working in, in he was working for the Californian government, and he was working um, writing about the the highway department had engaged some people to go and figure out why are these sand dunes constantly covering our highway? And he had to go and write about this futile effort to try and move these sand dunes off this interstate that they'd built through the middle of some sand dunes. And, you know, sort of getting, seeing that, oh, humanity's progress is no match for nature and seeing right. how the environment was changing. This is in the 60s. All right. Seeing yeah. how the environment and the climate was changing even then. Um, and that's where Dune came from. It's a fascinating story. So, no, it's not from that. Um, the Golden Path is a song which is a collaboration between the Chemical Brothers and the Flaming the Lips. The Flaming Lips, yeah, yeah. The Flaming Lips are one, for me, one of the most extraordinary musical um, forces that we are grateful to live at the same time as because when they play, when they perform, they don't just sing songs, they create a, a moment within the space of the performance area which everyone gets to participate in. And there's a line at the end of that particular song. Please forgive me. I Mm. never meant to hurt you. Exactly right. We are standing at the 2004 Big Day Out. The Flaming Lips are on stage. There's about eight to 10,000 people standing there watching this band play. As we're watching them, giant balloons, probably a metre wide, which have been thrown out into the crowd at the start of the show, are still bouncing around everywhere amongst the crowd. We are we have been bonded by the last 40 minutes or so of incredibly uplifting songs and Wayne Coyne's extraordinary emotive thing. And at the same time, we all sang this line. And it was as if all of us were singing to every ex- every lover, every family member, everyone close to our heart that we had accidentally wronged and now suddenly realized, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And as I look, I'm singing at the top of my lungs and Nigel, as I look around, I'm like, I'm starting to cry. I was starting right. to cry. And yeah. as I look around, every person around me is in tears it takes an extraordinary musical moment and an extraordinary performer to have that mass emotive reaction. I'm sure people will experience this when they're at some sort of evangelical church or some sort of sure. you know motivational speaker firewalker event when everyone's been built up and built up and built up to this moment and then bam, they hit you with the key change and then you, you're just un, unable to, to do it. But- it was that beautiful transcendent moment that absolute strangers standing shoulder to shoulder all for that moment felt the collective sense of, oh my God, I just realizing I'm so sorry. I'll probably never see you. <laughs> I don't even know your number. Yeah. I can't even find a way to say I'm sorry, but I'm going to take this moment right now to sing to the top of my lungs. I'm so sorry. 
And it was just such a beautiful moment. It, it's wonderful hearing you, you chat, mate, because I, I, I was going through the, the thousands and thousands of comments underneath the YouTube video. And one of them that I wrote down... Of the video for this song. Oh, I love the video. Yeah, 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 I, I, yeah, let yeah, me yeah. come to it. There's this quote which just backs up what you've just said. Is someone wrote on it, you know, from Brazil or somewhere, this isn't a song... This is a prayer from our souls. Absolutely, I think. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And 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 hearing you talk, you yeah. go. Well, that's that. That's what happens. That's what happens. That's what happened there. And and this is a. It's the big day out. It's yeah. forty degrees. You're at this Homebush Stadium in Sydney, which, if you've never been there, is a barren hellscape of concrete paving, and it was just hot as fuck. And it was like people have been day drinking since one p.m. and across the thing metallica's letting off fireworks and there's angry music coming from all around us at a festival you know the sound is bleeding through and then then here we are in this extraordinary uplifting secularly spiritual moment where complete strangers were weeping together in the collective love and contrition that they could never express face to face to someone that they had wronged in their past and they wished they hadn't and it was just beautiful I, I wish we had time to chat about the video because that it, it, as a, a as a representation of cubicle farm office building hell Oh yeah, there is no better. That, that poor bastard in, at his computer, looking at that code, and, yeah. then, and then off he goes dancing with the hippie chicks, and, and yeah. it, it, it makes you sore. This is the five of my life. More with Osha after the break. This is the five of my life with Nigel Marsh. Uh, mate, given your first three choices, you could forgive me for being slightly surprised about your fourth choice, which is the the place. Because if you were to take a cynical view, which I don't, you, you could describe Disneyland as a commercial Matrix-esque happiness <laughs> trap. <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Wh- which one did you go to? Uh, which Disneyland did we go to? We went to the... You know, let's call it the the Mecca, the pilgrimage. We went to the one in Anaheim in California. Right. Um, if you've... Uh, growing up in Queensland uh, in, the, in the 70s, there was a magical time at 6 o'clock on a Sunday when just before countdown... Um, I'm talking about in the olden times, folks, when we only had four channels of television. Um, and in Queensland, some of them were still black and white. Um just before Countdown, there was the Wonderful World of Disney or something. It was a syndicated, basically cut-up version of some of their cartoons and stuff like that. But the closing credits always had this footage of Disneyland as the closing credits rolled. I was like, oh, I have to go there one day. <laughs> and then it's kind of like, you know, sold to you as a kid and whatever, like Disneyland, Disneyland, Disneyland. And then when they win the Super Bowl, where are you going? I'm going to Disneyland! You're like, you want to, you know, you want to go. So right around the time when I first met my wife, Audrey, and her extraordinary daughter, Georgia, um, there was talk. I was living in California. I was living in Venice Beach. I, was, I lived in America for 10 years and I was still living in California. And Audrey had already been over. We just started, we'd been together about six months. And what, what, what year is this? To the end of 2014, Audrey had come over for a couple of weeks. Um, and then we resolved that the next time we'd see each other, she would bring Georgia and we would, she would come to California. We would spend some time together, the three of us in California. And if you ever, ever have the chance, try as hard as you can to go to Disneyland with a 10-year-old. She was 10 years old. She was dressed 
and, and it's amazing how they do it. They they dress a kid. The, the place is designed to go to with kids, little kids. All right. If you want, if you want roller coasters and stuff, you go to Six Flags. All right. Disneyland is like ten. She was just, just, just nearly too old. She was like the like. If we'd gone two months later, she would have been not been into it. Like we were barely there, right? But she dressed up as Snow White. She had her hair done like Snow White. And we're walking through Disneyland. And the employee experience, as far as the company goes, they're extraordinarily well trained. Um, the employees would be like see her and go, oh, Hey, Jerry, Snow White is here. Oh, good morning, princess. You know, like <laughs> even total strangers, like they're bowing down to her in the street and she's dressed like Snow White. Because so little girls everywhere are dressed up like princesses and they're walking through this place. And as we walked around Disneyland, and, you know, we're, we're, we're just kind of, oh, my God, I'm here. You know, I've been there before, but never with a kid, you know. And as we walked around, it was still very early in our relationship. And, and Georgia had only kind of known about me as this man in her mum's life for a couple of months. And as we walked around together and kind of did this family thing together, it was the and I, and I watched the way that Audrey, so as, you know, she got her ready in the morning and did her hair and I saw the tender way that Audrey mothered this beautiful kid and their beautiful relationship. And I was like, I don't want to do anything but be around these two people. This is all I want to do. Whatever I wanted in America, whatever I came here for 10 years ago, which was to chase the dream of hosting the biggest television shows on the biggest networks, which I ended up doing. There's no television show. There's no project. There's nothing that I want more than wanting to be around these two people. And as we walked around Disneyland, as we stood in front of the Magic Castle, as I watched these two beautiful women eat ice cream in front of the Magic Castle, I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to live in America anymore. I want to live with these two people. I want to get married to this woman and I want to be the stepfather to this kid. And that's what happened at Disneyland. Which is not really how they design it. That's that is that is a <laughs> sensational story. I, I, I tell you, what, listening to to your story about your your um, uh, stepdaughter walking around is. I, I went to that uh, Disneyland with my young son Harry, and it, it's a moment that uh, I, I don't want to burst into tears and, and blub on a podcast. But uh, bloody do it! That's what people listen. <laughs> they listen but, for authenticity, Nigel. But, but well, I tell you, it's a moment that I will never ever forget it's seared into my brain so my young little he's a little he was a little blonde little kid and he was i don't know seven or something perfect a- and he's walking around and we just arrived there. it's slightly hassle you know that family admin it's a bit of a pain oh, in the ass. trying to get yeah. through the, oh, yeah yeah you you the, get up in the morning the you gotta queues, get up, you gotta pack all the food and no 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 so he, he walks in and i'm <laughs> welling up and he sees he turns the corner <laughs> he sees piglet from Winnie the Pooh, right? I mean, it's not even the main bloody character, right? But but we've I've read him Winnie the Pooh possibly two million times. Anyway, and in his eyes, it's not that's a bloke dressed as Piglet. It's Piglet. So he did a sort of like like a cartoon Tom and Jerry. He like so went rigid, arms out, and then ran to Piglet and put his arms around his belly and his and his the side of his face, and he wouldn't let go. He, he's like, I Dad, I found. Piglet, the bloke in those books, he's he's here on holiday with us. It was amazing. It didn't make me want to go off and marry someone else because I was with my current wife, but yeah. it, it, it's one of the most special moments yeah. in my 54 years on this bloody planet. It's really something, isn't it? 
We need more time. We're, I'm going to make this podcast. I can't for this episode, but I'm after this conversation, I'm going to have you back on again. But I'm going to have to push you because we're running out of time. Yeah. But, but is your choice just now was the first choice, if I've got my chronology right, that comes from the post-name change Osher era. This is true. It is true. And what that reminds me of is yet another bloody quote, which yeah. is, we shouldn't let our past define us but we should let it be an important part of what we become. Yes. Which are, I think is it's fascinating listening to you talking yeah. where, your, where your choices come from. And you've got one more choice, which is uh, your Polaroid camera. Yes. Now, 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 I've seen this thing. Can, can you describe it for people who haven't seen it? I've taken your photo with it. Yeah. Uh, I have a 1961 Polaroid camera, uh, which has been modified so it can take uh, food... Uh, well, it, it was a Polaroid camera where they, they stopped making the kind of film that would work in it. It was modified to then take a more modern version of the Polaroid film, which then Polaroid stopped making and then Fuji started making and now Fuji has stopped making. So I have a couple of hundred boxes left of this film, but once that's gone, it's gone. It's never, never, no. ever coming back, never coming back. What I love about this camera and what I love about Polaroid photography, I used to shoot all the time, Nigel. I was a big, big, big photography guy, and, and um, it was almost a career, a career path when television was looking when Idol was over, and it looked like it was never going to happen again. Photography was a very, very. I'd done an exhibition. I was getting taken quite seriously. I was in Los Angeles. I was pursuing it quite, quite seriously. Um, but now the only time I get to shoot is when I do my podcast and right. I shoot a portrait on the Polaroid. Now. Steve Jobs is only Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs copied Edwin Land. Edwin Land is the man who created the instant Polaroid camera. He is possibly the most extraordinary uh, entrepreneur and creative mind that lived in the 20th century, more so than Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs, oh, just one more thing. Well, that shit he used to do with the keynotes, directly copied from Edwin Land. Right. Absolutely copied it. There's an extraordinary book called um, Insisting on the Impossible, which is how um, Land used to work. Um, to give you an example, when you shoot a Polaroid film, the first 10 seconds of that film developing, because uh, I've interviewed the lead chemist uh, right, of Polaroid, right. All right, yeah. I've, I've, who worked with Edwin Land. I've tracked this guy down. He is in the Netherlands. He's in Anskater in the Netherlands. I tracked him down. In the first 10 seconds, something like... Uh, seven hundred and no, seventy-two chemical reactions take place. All right, of those seventy-two chemical reactions, so that's one hundred and forty-four different chemicals reacting to each other. One chemical reacting to each other. A hundred of those are proprietary. Right. So they invented the chemicals that would do this process. So, you, but the simplicity of shoot the picture. Oh, it's coming from a, a blank thing and also the colors come up there it is there's a photo the other thing i love about polar photography is that that picture i took of you and me that's it yeah that's the only one it exists so if i would hand you a polaroid picture that andy warhol took of grace jones on his sx70 in studio 54 and you held it in your hands there is an absolute certainty guarantee we can go to the national museum we can look behind a glass case and go look at that object that object was dug out of a ground somewhere far away and that object was around five thousand years ago or that object you know possibly was around when jesus was alive or whatever whatever i could hand this object to you there is an absolute certainty that grace jones held it that andy warhol held it that that object was in the room in this special place there is and there's only one of them and that is what I absolutely love about Polaroid photography. I have a Canon 5D Mark IV with a 128 gigabyte card. Then I can shoot 10,000 frames 
if I want to get one. But when you're shooting Polaroid, you get one. And do you know, this This is a quite a, uh, I think, profound, interesting note for us to wrap up on because part of what makes you, I think, so appealing is your approach to connection. And if I, if I, I, I don't take photographs, I don't do social media, but if I look at my kids when they take photographs on their iPhone and they sort of edit it and, and well, I don't know, they, they, they put tone on it or whatever else or say, Daddy, take lots more and they choose it. Mm. it it's a completely different uh, process than you taking that picture of me, which I've actually still got my fridge um, door. Oh, yeah. I just came out and stuck it on the fridge. It's so still I, sh- there. I, shot, I, shoot, I shoot two where I make, because the light's different in the room sometimes, yeah. so I, I adjust the light between the two of them. We choose the one that's got the better light. So I think there's a, there's a truth and a lesson in that, which is, it goes beyond all the wonderful technical stuff, and you you talk wonderfully about the the, the filmmaking process for for the Matrix, but also for the the Polaroid. But it goes to a deeper human point about the just the truth of connection. Is this is not a false thing? If I if I had a, yeah. a spot on my nose or I was you know a glassy eye or something, you go well, tough shit, mate. This is it. It's in the real moment. Mm. We're connecting as two human beings, mm. you know, soul to soul. Mm. Absolutely fabulous. You, you've come in today, and you're you're been busy but you've brought your best self and i i i, I find this just wonderful but i'm, I'm gonna trick you with a with a, a final question hit me hit you with a final question it is my mate alex who's sitting across the desk has, producer here. has, has got a magic wand and yeah. as long as it's not fictional or they aren't dead he can get anybody in the world who would you like to hear next on five of my life and we'll call him or her up Oh, who would I like to hear next on Five of My Life? Uh, I would like to hear former Californian governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a deal. Osher Gunsberg, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on Five of My Life. Thank no you, mate. nice. Thanks for having me, man. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 